0: Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week, Travis and I are talking about immigration and border policy with our friend, Laura Collins of the George W. Bush Institute. We want to help you as our audience here on Capital Conversation think well, think critically about immigration uh, now as always, but especially now as news reports are growing over potential surges in unaccompanied minors at the southern border. And as you see news reports of that, you might hear those stories and think, Think about how do we care for the immigrant well? How do we celebrate immigration as important to the United States and seek positive reforms while also not creating a magnet for further crisis at the border? Well, I think Laura is going to be able to help us do that today, and that's because she serves as director of the Bush Institute and SMU's Economic Growth Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. Collins previously served as director of immigration policy at the American Action Forum. She has experience in politics, working as a senior research analyst at the Republican National Committee for the 2012 election cycle, as well as in the Texas House of Representatives for the 82nd Legislature. A former practicing attorney, Collins earned her JD from the University of Texas School of Law and her bachelor's from the University of Oklahoma. Laura, thanks for joining Travis and me today here on Capital Conversations.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about border policy today.
2: Yeah, thanks for being with us, Laura. Jeff, you mentioned uh, you know our friend Laura and I go way back. You might have noticed that we share an alma mater. Laura and I were actually in the same section in law school, we've agreed not to share any stories. I think the the principle of mutual assured destruction will uh, will prevent any any uh, any dirt from coming out on the podcast. But um, it's good to be with you, Laura.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm just thrilled that like you know Travis does this work too, um, because I think so highly of him and ha- always have. And so it's just nice when we have Stop people. It. He's shaking his head. People wouldn't be able Stop to see it. this on the podcast, obviously, but. You know, it's just it's nice when you work on a tough issue, to have people who are friends and who you trust and and who you think uh, think big about things. And so I'm really excited. Travis works on this issue too.
0: Man, that is a that is a good word, Laura. And you're exactly right. There's something about that that trust that reaches back before <laughs> Washington D.C.,
2: uh, <laughs> especially yeah. working yeah, trust- on. Trust isn't formed in Washington D.C. You you no. come in you come in with it, and if you're lucky, you leave with it. But uh, you don't yeah. create it here.
0: Yeah, I've definitely been in rooms around conference tables where uh, where immigration gets brought up, and nobody says anything. And somebody once said, "Well, I don't want to get shot, so I'm not going to raise my hand and talk about what I really think about you know compassionate immigration." It's interesting, Travis, that you said uh, we share an alma mater. And Laura, oh, what was it true. like going from OU? to Austin, Texas, to, uh, you know, get your Longhorn Law School degree?
1: You know, I think a lot of people really focus on the differences. And obviously, there's a big rivalry. And I was raised in rural <laughs> Oklahoma. And my whole family are OU alums. But I, there's a lot of similarities between the two schools as well. Travis probably won't <laughs> agree. Um, but you do have do a agree. with, you know, really deep um, and abiding love for football and really deep and abiding love of of their alma mater. And so it it's... For me, if you look for the similarities, you can find them. Um, but I will say Austin and Norman are very different places. Um, <laughs> UT is a much, much larger campus than OU. Um, and so, you know, I really enjoyed my time at both places and for completely different reasons. They're they are, you know, law school's just different anyway. Um, but I valued the the friendships and the relationships I've made in both places and and definitely um will always have those fond memories and good ties to UT.
0: So you see folks, this is why Laura's going to help us think well about these controversial issues. Cause she's a bridge builder, I have a little child. Which, you yeah. know, this
1: is what I, this is, this just comes naturally to me. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Well, this is perfect. Cause I'm an Aggie and uh, you know, there's always a little bit of Aggie longhorn banter in our office. Maybe we'll have to bring you in uh, for uh, some mediation. All right. So let's, let's jump into the topic at hand here. I'd, I'd like to begin by, Highlighting and I and I I told you this when we were emailing about about doing this uh, doing this conversation here on the podcast. You wrote an op-ed uh, a couple years back now, uh, and at the beginning of 2019, uh, and it was titled "Border Challenges Are Real and Urgent, but Solutions Are More Complex." Um, we're going to talk through some more updated specifics because policy debates are changing not just by the year, but by the month and by the week sometimes. But I think looking back on that most recent big debate about – and I think at the time, if my memory serves me right, we were uh, – Congress was debating the Trump administration's border wall uh, and how how they were going to go about uh, seeking, seeking funding for that wall. And so you – that op-ed, and I'll link to it in the show notes for folks to take a look at it, I think uh, – I think that will give our listeners a good overview of the challenges we face and, and what is actually required to solve these kind of problems and not just, uh, to quote your piece, fighting over a sideshow. Uh, so give us give us a highlight of what you were seeking to do in that op-ed from 2019.
1: Yeah, well, I think – You know, we've worked on immigration at the Bush Institute since its founding when President Bush left office. And then in the last few years, we took a look at the work we do and said, what else, you know, what else can we do that relates to what we're already talking about? And one of those things was talking about Central America and the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and the things that are happening there. So we started up a policy program there. We call it the Central America Prosperity Project. And one of the goals of that is to bring people from those three countries together and say, what are your shared challenges and what is it that you can do that's actionable? And it's going to have a big impact. And so we got those folks together in a room all pre-pandemic. This was in late 2018 and early 2019. and, And they talked a lot about the same things. Corruption, lack of economic opportunity, uh, violence, and you know, some in some cases there was even some discussion about the rule of law, and they came up with a set of policy recommendations of of things that they could do in country that the governments of the Northern Triangle could do on their own to really try to help push uh, push through these problems and and really have some breakthroughs to make life better for people on the ground there. And so when you look at Central America in that context. Um, you really do see why people are leaving, and that is what we see at our border. We see people leaving the Northern Triangle countries because they don't have job opportunities. They can't support their families. Even if they can, they you know they can't go out on their street at night after dark because they might be victimized by a street gang. Um, there's high rates of gender-based violence. You don't see a lot of um, anyone who is, victims don't have confidence that law enforcement is going to actually, you know, hold anybody accountable for victimizing them. And so those are the things that are really pushing people to leave. And so when you look at our immigration work and say, you know, we think immigration is good for America. We think Americans benefit from the contributions of immigrants. And then you look at this problem and say, well, people are leaving because they don't have the same opportunities we do, and they want to come here and live in freedom and prosperity. How do you fix that? Because I want immigrants to come here and contribute, but I also want them to be able to thrive at home. I don't want them to have to leave home because they can't thrive where they are. And that's really what the root of, of all of that was. You know, Physical barriers like walls Democratic and Republican presidents with Democratic and Republican Congresses have funded physical barriers. They funded fences and walls, and they have a role, but they're not going to solve the problems people face that force them to leave. And so if you really want to take a look at this problem holistically, you have to look at why people leave and what our role is, what's appropriate for the United States to do to help solve those problems. And that is what we tried to touch on a little bit. In that off bed,
2: baked into what you were saying was a, a handful of different types of of immigrants and and migrants. People who are uh, fleeing a well founded fear of persecution, uh, people who are leaving for economic reasons, people who are leaving for for reasons that that might fall in between those two categories. Talk talk to us a little bit about potential asylees, refugees. Uh, economic migrants and and how you think about those things through you know through the lens that you just laid out for us in terms of the the you know what we might call the the root causes or root drivers for migration in the Northern Triangle.
1: Yeah, so let's start with economic migrants. Economic migrants are people who want to come here because they want to work. Uh, they want to contribute to our economy. They want to, in many cases, start businesses. We know immigrants are very entrepreneurial, and a lot of times, if you're an economic migrant. Sometimes it's because you just see a good opportunity here. A lot of times it's because you don't have a good opportunity at home. So that's what an economic migrant is. In terms of asylum seekers, a lot of the people we see from Central America come here and request asylum. You mentioned well-founded fear of persecution. That's really basically the definition of an asylum seeker, someone who leaves uh, home because of that. Um, an asylum seeker shows up at our border and, and requests that, says, I'm, I'm in fear of my life and, and I would like protection in the United States. In some cases, um, it might be a person who's already here who came on a visa legally, um, who maybe needed to go home because their visa expired. They feel like they're going to be persecuted when they get home, so they might request asylum in that way as well. But in general, when we think of asylum seekers, they are the people appearing at our border, at our ports of entry, and saying, I need help. Please protect me. It's similar to a refugee because the definition is very similar, but refugees apply from overseas. They go through um, a slightly different vetting process because they're not here immediately. And so you should, I think, think of them as similar and that they're both groups of people who are who are leaving because they don't have the opportunity to live in safety and security and freedom and prosperity where they are. Um, but what we see with the Northern Triangle is it's it's a combination of all those things, right? Um, it's not just that there are no jobs. It's not just that um, there's violence. It's it's that that really sort of toxic mix of the things together. So we see some asylum seekers who show up and have legitimate cases who will be admitted through our legal asylum process, we see other people who do show up because they're an economic migrant, but they don't have access to the other legal channels of migration here. They don't qualify for a temporary worker visa. They don't qualify for a green card or legal residency here. And so asylum's their only chance to migrate legally. And they take that because they think they might be able to make a case. In some cases, they can because they really do meet that definition. In a lot of cases, they don't. And we have a system that really vets those people out and says and tries to figure out who has the legitimate claim and who doesn't. If you don't have a legitimate claim, we turn you around. We tell you to go back home. So, you know, it's just it's hard when you talk about what that looks like for Central America, because it's not just one cause. Um, It's not just a humanitarian crisis where you might see in other parts of the world. We really do have this odd mix of people who are looking for a job and people who fear for their lives.
2: Yeah. So, Laura, you you mentioned the asylum process. I mean, I, I'm sure that you have, just like I have, been down uh, to the border to see what that process looks like. And I, I think we would. Uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to put you on the record. I'll just speak for for ourselves. I mean, we we certainly think that reforms that system uh, need to take place. I mean, I, I know that um, I you know before having seen. Uh, what that process looks like, myself had had really put a lot of stock in the due process that asylum seekers receive. But you know, over the last several years, that that process has become rather thin in a lot of cases. But the other the other point that you made that I, I think is worth underscoring is uh you know is is the point about gender based violence and you know as we you know we, when we talk about religious persecution on this uh, on this podcast, this the same thing is true that the brunt Falls mostly on women and, and girls when it comes to widespread violence and and uh, impunity uh, in within the uh, within the legal system. So, Laura, talk talk a little bit about that. I mean, in, in terms of the you know the the sort of unique. Uh, I mean, pressure isn't really even a strong enough word to describe this, but you know the unique um, uh, challenges that that women and girls face in the Northern Triangle.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, I don't know that challenge is a strong enough word. It's just so pervasive. You know, there's sort of two things here, and you know this as well as I do, that there's the legal system and rule of law, which in many cases, actually, the legal structures in place and the laws on the books do punish gender-based violence and domestic violence. There's questions about whether the sentences are long enough, but, you know, that's a different, I think, issue. Really, what we're talking about, though, are, you know, social determinants. When you have um, and we've heard these stories. Um, they're really tough to, l- to listen to. When you have people who know that their daughters are likely to be targeted by street gangs, so they encourage them to get pregnant as teenagers and to get into early relationships, stable relationships, um, stable being relative, right? Um, because it's a it's a forced relationship, so that they won't be targeted by a street gang and potentially raped. When you know that there are women who know they have to leave and know that in their journey from Central America through Mexico to the U.S. border, they stop at the last clinic before they enter Mexico and get a birth control shot because they know they're going to be sexually assaulted on the journey and they're trying to protect themselves from carrying a rapist baby, those are really tough things that we just cannot fathom here and they're not problems that are easily solved and they're not necessarily unfortunately you know it's not something that really falls neatly into the definition of asylum either so that's something you have to actually work in country to fix and it goes so much deeper than the horrible cases it's not just about rape and sexual assault it's the sort of um like low drumbeat of violence that you might experience on a daily basis as a woman or girl. Um, And that impacts everything. It impacts your ability to get an education. It impacts your ability to fully contribute to your society and to your economy. It impacts your ability to be a full human being in your relationships with your family and friends. And people shouldn't have to live like that. And yet we know this is something that's being experienced by women and girls in the Northern Triangle.
0: I think it's, it's, you know, this is something that our our friends and partners at International Justice Mission uh, have have just really done an incredible job of leading the church in the United States to understand these issues and what is you know what is required uh, to you know to deal with that, like you were describing in a low drumbeat of of violence and to serve the vulnerable poor there to defend them against that kind of everyday violence uh, that that happens and that is a driver of. Immigration and uh, and uh, crises at the various borders on the way up to our
2: own uh, at the the southern border of the United States. Yeah, and and before you move on, there there's a bill that we have uh, worked with IJM on the the Central American Women and Children Protection Act that that gets at uh, targeted aid within the Northern Triangle to address uh you know to address these issues of uh, basically the you know the on a fundamental level the failure of the justice system to hold perpetrators of violence sexual assault sexual violence accountable uh because i think that's you know as as laura has has talked about it addressing the the root causes the root problems within the northern triangle is a key part of Uh, Of the solution here, right?
0: Yeah, and and you know it's important again to think of this not just in terms of uh, the the broader conversation about foreign aid all across the world, but particular foreign aid in this region where people are able to literally walk uh, from one country into into the next. Like these are issues that really and truly are uh, are next door to us in the United States. So so Laura, let's. Let's talk about that door. You've got this uh, white paper that just released uh, titled Smart Border Policies for the 21st Century. Um, We've talked a lot about The Northern Northern Triangle policies, of which uh, you and your colleagues uh, deal with, uh, in I wouldn't say in great detail because this is a this is a white paper that anybody uh, listening could could read. Uh, It's it's really uh, it's it's a good read. It's a quick read to to get into these issues. But don't be intimidated if you want to click the link. I've got it in the show notes, folks. Uh, But. One question that I want to, or I guess section of this white paper that I want to ask you about is uh, the section about creating legitimate programs for in-region processing for asylum seekers, because I think it's important for for folks to understand that a lot of the times when we experience a crisis at our border with people seeking asylum, it's it's breaking down and it's the numbers are ballooning uh, in that processing of asylum seekers. So- What's needed to fix that problem so we don't have that kind of ballooning of the system and a crisis straining our border?
1: First, thank you for the compliment on the readability. This is a complex topic. We really try hard to make sure that our (laughs) policy is is really accessible. Um, And so I do encourage people to take a look at it. Um, It is, you know, we worked very hard with a group of experts too. This wasn't something we came up with on our own. We had a working group of people, many of whom used to be in government. Others were academics or think tankers who who, uh, sat in a Zoom room together and talked about this over several months. And, you know, you mentioned in-region processing. There are some people who the danger they face as asylum seekers isn't so imminent that they can't apply at... a a U.S. embassy or a consulate, for example. But we don't really have it set up in a way that they can do that. So we need to have that as an avenue. How do they go to um, whatever the local U.S. government presence is there and 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 apply for asylum there. That doesn't work for everybody, obviously. Some people really do need to to leave in order to protect their to protect themselves and their families. But some people can't stay. Um, I think the other piece of this that's related but not exactly about in-region processing is the legal channels for migration. One of the reasons people come here and try to seek asylum or people try to cross the border or people get a visa and overstay and end up being undocumented or illegal is because they don't have a legal method to get here. Uh, They don't have a pathway to get a green card in a reasonable amount of time because our system is set up that most of the green cards go to family members for U.S. citizens and legal residents. The other one's Mostly go to people who have bachelor's degrees or higher. So if you're here, if you are someone in Central America who is a skilled worker, has something to contribute you probably don't qualify for any of the ways that you can come here legally. So we have to really find a way to extend those programs and make sure Central Americans have access to them because we know people want to migrate legally. It doesn't make sense to migrate illegally. It's a lot harder. Um, It's dangerous if you're trying to cross Mexico and come here. It's expensive if you have to pay someone to smuggle you across. Um, And we know that Living here as an undocumented person is really hard. There's no social safety net for you whatsoever. Uh, You, no matter what your skills and education and abilities are, you're relegated only to the jobs that will take you because they're not going to check who you are. Um, So, if you are a master plumber, for example, or a master electrician in your home country, you're not going to be able to do that work here. So, you're not going to be able to fully um, to use your skills and abilities fully in the broader economy. So. Finding ways to incentivize people to use legal channels is just so important because it's going to reduce the number of people who are trying to show up at our border to gain entry, and it's going to channel them through um, the ways that we know where we can check who they are, run the background checks, um, and then we have ways to make sure we can see that they're successful because they're going to have the ability to really fulfill the potential here.
0: So we're talking about border policy. What role does a border wall play in border security? What role does technology? I mean, with the with the title of this white paper, folks probably would would imagine that you that you get into some uh, technology aspects when talking about the you know border policy in the twenty first century. What role does that play in securing the border?
1: I think when you think about things like physical barriers and technology, like drones or surveillance, you really have to think about what you're trying to accomplish with those. Are you trying to stop people? Are you trying to stop contraband? Um, what are you? What is it you're trying to do? And 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 you know, walls don't really stop people. They slow them down. They force them into more dangerous routes um but all you're really doing is is just is sort of funneling people to where you want them to go assuming that's who's crossing and um, you know i don't really view migrants as a security threat so for me i think that you know a better solution is these legal channels because then you know you're not having people risk their lives to try to cross a really remote part of our desert the security threats are things like human smugglers who only really exist because we don't have these legal channels for people to come. So desperate people will do whatever they can to get here. And I think we have to be realistic. You know, sometimes cartels do try to get drugs across our border between ports of entry, but it's pretty limited to drugs like marijuana because when you're talking about the harder drugs, the fentanyls and the heroines of the world, those things are easier to smuggle through ports of entry because even if most of them are caught, you might get one or two shipments in underneath um, something, underneath a pallet of vegetables, right? Um, so what we really need to do when we talk about technology, it's not just surveillance between ports of entry, but really upgrading what our technology at ports of entry looks like so that when uh, shipments are going through, because we do a lot of trade and commerce at the border, when those things are going through that our, that our Customs and Border Protection Agency is 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 able to find what that contraband is and seize it at the ports of entry because we know that's where cartels are really trying to get their contraband through.
0: Now, that's good. I mean, there's so much about this conversation, and it goes back to what we were joking about at the beginning about wanting to have that sense of trust with the kind of people that we're advocating for these issues on. There's so much of this conversation that just is not is the facts don't don't bear out the rhetoric often. Um and and Laura, I love how you've helped us walk through the different uh the different aspects of the broader immigration debates that are happening in this country and it's it's a bit of a you've heard it said but let me tell you what the actual facts are on the ground and I think that can better help inform uh the way that we all uh, engage these issues in our local communities and with our elected representatives to uh to help advocate for a Smarter and a better policy at the at the border. I want to point folks again to your white paper. It was really helpful to me in thinking through these issues. There's a lot in here that's that's more detailed uh, than the kinds of policy advocacy that we here at the ERLC would engage and and endorse. But it but it, I think it represents the kind of rigorous and, and critical thinking that's really needed to to modernize our immigration system uh, to better deal with these these problems at our borders so uh, Laura thanks again for walking through these with us and in in conclusion here I, I just want to ask you if you can want to ask you a big thematic question to touch on our motivation for this kind of advocacy why does immigration matter for the United States why is this important Don't we have enough people here already? You know, <laughs> right? I mean, why does it matter? You know, we
1: hear that a lot. Um, immigration it enriches us and always. And I think that we can be a welcoming country and a secure country at the same time. And when you look at the values America holds. Freedom, um, in particular, we really are that beacon of light for so many people across the world, and it, we really should um, open arms wide and welcome them and help them become Americans because they can contribute here, and they have sent um, decades worth of evidence to show that they contribute. I know, um, I know my family's immigration story. I'm sure several of uh, your listeners know theirs as well. Um, immigrants can be successful here. We uh, we know that. They contribute and we benefit from their presence.
0: I love, obviously I agree. And I love how President, uh, former President Bush talks about how immigration is a sign of a confident nation. And I think that's exactly, exactly right. If we are confident in who we are as Americans, we recognize that immigration is important to our national story.
2: So uh, speaking of President Bush, Laura, uh, the president has a new uh, book coming out about uh, immigration titled Out of Many One. T- tell us tell us about that project.
1: Well, we are just so excited about this project. As many of you probably know, President Bush in his post-presidency life has become quite the painter. And so he uh, painted.
0: It's so amazing. Uh, you know, he's it's, really it's good such a great, too. So great. I mean, I'm
1: not an art critic by any means, but <laughs> I, I think he's very good. Um, yeah, I agree. He, he, um, some of your listeners may have remembered in the last few years, he had a book of, uh, paintings of of veterans. And this time around, he's painted, uh, 43 portraits of America's immigrants. They come from all different walks of life. Some of them are people who are, um, well-known. Some of them are just your average friends and neighbors and contributing members of the community, just really emphasizing the fact that Immigrants Contribute and America Benefits. Um, it's not just their stories and their paintings. There's also a little bit of the of the policy in the book as well. And so we're just really excited to have that come out. It comes out later this spring. Um, the stories are really incredible. I had the great privilege of, of seeing what many of those profiles look like, and they're quite moving. And so I encourage everybody to take a look at it when it comes out, because I think that um, you will really see... Uh, the story of America in those paintings.
2: The book releases later in April, is that it right? It is.
1: It's in late April.
2: Okay. Well, we will definitely be looking for that. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more. Um, Laura, how can folks stay connected with you and your work and writing?
1: Well, mostly you can visit our website, bushcenter.org. We've got a lot of resources on there, including the entire white paper series. We're also on social media. Our, our team here does a really great job of putting things out that are digestible. And so you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, On Twitter, I know we're definitely at the Bush Center. And so just take a look what's out there and interact with us there.
2: Great. Thank you so much for being with us, Laura. It's good to to connect with you. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other in Texas sometime soon.
1: Yes, certainly. Post-pandemic.
2: Thanks again, Laura. This is Capital
0: Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show and found it helpful, consider sending a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. This really does help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, the white paper, Laura's op-ed from 2019, Uh, And a link to learn more about President Bush's new book, Out of Many One, will be available in the show notes and, as always, at com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.